Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, uh, let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, uh, Alyssa PR, public relations consultant. Lots to talk about today, including everything from Black Lives Matter to uh, back to school and, and everything else uh, in between. First of all, I want to give you, uh, obviously there's a march in Washington uh, going on, and we want to play you a clip. This is from Martin Luther King III. I ask you to pledge, as my father and John Lewis did, to get into good trouble and do it nonviolently. Remember that in the fight against injustice, nonviolence doesn't mean passive acceptance. It means peaceful resistance. We must come together and join with the Black Lives Movement to raise our voices and say enough is enough. And how can we not? Uh, well, we've seen what's happened with Jacob Blake. This all started way back when with George Floyd uh, coming to people's attention, making it, uh, making no mistake of, of, of what has happened in these two cases involving uh, these two men. And obviously we've seen sports teams react to this. Uh, the NBA and Major League Baseball, NHL, a little slow to the mark, but uh, have uh, have come out uh, again in support. Uh, no games played un- until the weekend at this point. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, Alyssa PR. She's with us now. Alyssa, thanks for taking the time. I hope you're doing well. Hello? Alyssa, you there? Yes, I didn't hear you there, Scott. I hope you're doing well. I am, and I hope you're doing well also. We are, uh, Alyssa, you know, I remember talking to you shortly after the George Floyd incident, and we were both chatting about, you know, is this going to be changed? Is this going to be different? Is this somehow going to move the discussion? And here we are with the Jacob Blake story uh, and, and, and what has happened in uh, Wisconsin and shot seven times and, and paralyzed and such. Uh, and, and obviously the protests have started again. We're seeing sports teams uh, take a step back. Uh, are we at a turning point here, or again, is is this just the same round and round we go? Well, I hope it's not the same round and round we go, Scott. And I think that I'd like to say we're also at a turning point, but, you know, we really haven't seen anything turn, even since George Floyd and the massive protests there. I think that people have to respect the fact that people are going to protest. And I have heard many things saying, well, you know, why are the NBA players protesting? Why is MLS protesting? I mean, nothing's going to change. That's not the point. And, and you know, as because of this, there's a new phrase that's come out, and it's called um, protest shaming. I heard it for the mm. first time today. And it's saying that you're just doing something because nothing's going to change. Well, sometimes you just need a spark of something in order to create long-term change. So it has to start somewhere. And I'm hoping that it will. So, for example, with the NBA strike, uh, well, I guess the, the walkout, I should say, you know, with people like LeBron James are saying, okay, we're going to put our money where our mouths are, and we are now going to start to hire security. So when people want to go vote in predominantly black areas in the United States, we're going to make sure that they can do so safely, and we're going to hire our own security on behalf of this NBA group. So that is a very short-term change, but something that could be very effective. 
You know, uh, same thing. When this when this all started happening, many were saying, "Well, what does this do? Like, how are uh, basketball players or any other uh, professional athlete? How is it going to change something if they decide that they're not going to play?" And you know, uh, obviously, athletes are not politicians. They're not in a position where they can go and physically change laws. That being said, the fact that the world has you know paused and everybody is talking about that. Is that not the message? Well, that is the message, and I think you hit the nail on the head. And I think part of this is to get conversation going. This time last year, I can, you know, we can easily look up what we were talking about, Scott, and this was not it. So as the world changes, so does the conversation, and so does the narrative. And I think in order to get um, to move from nothing to at least contemplation on the way to the continuum of change and change is a long continuum like it just sometimes it can happen overnight and sometimes there is a process and with something like uh, black lives matter it's it's really systemic so there's a lot of layers in order to go through to create change however conversation is one Action is another, and I think that sometimes there could be a wide gap or a very small gap between the two. Uh, is this dividing or is this uniting? Um, you know, we're seeing more and more, not just the black community, getting behind Black Lives Matter. I think that it's, uh, I think that what it's doing is that all communities can get behind uh, Black Lives Matter. And I think that that's what this, if, if, if we are making a small change, I think that that is being accomplished to a certain extent. And because of the awareness and because people are understanding what systemic means, and I think that that definition of systemic is is huge for people to understand. You know, this why is it that white people have a hard time understanding this? And I and 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 I guess my answer to the question is they have not sat down and talked to somebody in the community and listened to their experience. Why? And, you know, I've even asked myself, when did my attitude change on all of this? But why Why does the white community have a hard time with this? Because they've never lived it. Yeah. It's not a learned experience. You know, the average white Canadian can go to the bank and say, I need a loan for a house. And the bank says, okay, here you go. Let's get a mortgage. Uh, or uh, I want to live here, so I'm just going to move in here regardless of who my neighbors are just because I think I want to move, I live here. So that happens with ease, and that's what we call white privilege. So when you don't have white privilege and you experience not getting that loan from the bank or not being able to move into the area that you want to move in or to have the educational opportunities or to have the work opportunities – Many of us don't have that lived experience. And if you don't have the lived experience, it, you, it's hard to talk about and it might be hard to understand. And that's why by creating conversation, we are able to gain a better understanding of the broader world around us. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. And, you know, I mean, a lot of people have asked for examples of white privilege or systemic racism or such. And, you know, another example has come to mind, and this in, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, where uh, the 17-year-old with an AK-47 walks down the street 
carrying his gun right past police. Nobody says anything. And then he goes shoots a couple of people. If that person was black, I don't think they would have taken too many steps with an AK-15 or whatever it's called in their hand. Uh, if that's not white privilege and systemic racism, what the heck is? Well, it's a great example of it. And when I watched it on the news, I said, you know, there is a kid with a, I think it was like an AR-15 rifle. Yeah. And not that I know my guns, Scott, but I do. That does stick out in my mind. And uh, he walked right past the police, and he and nothing happens to him. Yeah. And I'm thinking, if that was anybody else, yeah. if that was someone of color, I think the whole scenario would have been much different. Yeah, they could they could end up been shot. I mean, it's it's you know it's just it's it's, it's unbelievable that this is still happening. So and then the uh, news narrative. Sorry, go ahead. The news, the news narrative. I have to jump in. On Fox says, you know, it took some white kid who was a seventeen year old with his own gun to try and restore order. Yeah. I so you know, it's interesting how it all spins about. And uh, on that note, let's move. Uh, well, no, let's, let's stay on this a, a bit more. Um, so where does this go from here? Where do we, uh, again, how do we take another George Floyd incident? How do we take uh, the Blake incident and, and move this discussion forward? Well, I think it has to be by holding the police accountable for this. So the two police who killed Breonna Taylor, they're still walking around. The police that the the policeman who shot, uh, oh my gosh, his name just uh, Blake. He Jacob Blake is yeah. yeah he James like is he is on administrative leave. So you know what we see here is that there's no recourse. This happens and it happens and it happens and there's no recourse for the other half of the equation. So until there is recourse. Until there is a accepted responsibility that there needs to be change, uh, behavioral change, it's hard to see where we can go go to from here. Uh, I have to bring up Donald Trump in his uh, speech to to wind up the the Republican National Convention. And, um, you know, politics aside, whether you're left or right or this or that or in the center or what have you, um, you know, I could only watch it for a bit. Um, because it was just so, uh, it, it was, it was incredibly negative. And, uh, y- you know, obviously that is fueling a lot of this fire. Well, I was like you, I watched a little bit of it, but it went on for an hour. And I remember my husband came upstairs, he's like, he's still talking. So, and, and I have to tell you, I get such a dread and I even get anxiety listening to him. But the whole Republican narrative is, you see our cities burning? Do you want to have a nice way of life? Do you want to live in a beautiful home? Do you want to have the perfect family? And these are like words straight from, quite frankly, Don, Donald Trump Jr. So all of this is going to be threatened if you put the Democrats in power. Yeah, yeah. And this is a narrative that was very similar to the 1968 race riots that the Republicans, I believe it was Nixon, used very, very successfully. And they won that election. So based on history you know this republican party who was like who was very much a republican party that most of us who have been around do not recognize this republican party is doubling down on the fear factor hoping that that's what that will carry them into the polls
where, how do you predict, uh, and I mean, it's impossible to predict, how do you predict where this campaign is going to go in the next month or two? The U.S. election is at the beginning of November. There's the issues with uh, Black Lives Matter and, and what's been going on with, with this particular case and such of, of, uh, of Jacob Blake. Uh, there's also the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, the incredibly divisive politics that's going on uh, in the United States. What do you see happening in the next six, eight weeks? I see a doubling down of these narratives. I see it as long as there are protests, the Republicans will play on that uh, in terms of fear that your democratic way of life is, uh, is going to disappear as you know it. We're going to become a socialist state. Uh, this is the way things are going to go now if you don't keep uh, the Republicans in power. So that is 100% going to be their narrative. As long as people are protesting, that feeds right into, I hate to say it, but that feeds right into the Republican narrative. Yeah, yeah. The Democrats, on the other hand, are going to talk about this is happening because there is no sense of law and order. And if you want law and order, you know, the president's going to bring in the National Guard and it's, you know, it's going to be a whole different type of state. So these t- it's going to be nasty. Now, you know, it's kind of been bubbling along in terms of what people think. But now, now that the both conventions are over, it's going to get angry and it's going to strike fear into the hearts of all people who are voting and all people who are looking at this election. And it's going to be nasty. All right, let's uh, bring it back to Canada here. Um, uh, obviously, this week, uh, the Conservatives elected Aaron O'Toole as their new leader. Uh, what is Aaron O'Toole's biggest challenge in your thoughts so far? Aaron O'Toole's biggest challenge is actually getting Canadians to know who he is. And this is mm-hmm. the same thing that happened with Andrew Scheer. So, you know, we can play this all over again, and hopefully the Conservatives have learned something that they never really properly introduced Andrew Scheer. So, number one, there'll be, uh, there has to be a great strategy in terms of introducing him to Canadians and, and what he stands for. He has some progressive policies, but, I'm, you know, he says he's pro-choice, but how pro-choice is he, for, for example? Um, the other thing, too, is that, you know, the Liberals are start going to start to, be, to pick away at some of those weaknesses, and I think that we will soon see that. The other thing about Aaron O'Toole is that he needs, and so far he's done a good job of this, Scott, but he needs to answer the question. So every time Andrew Shearer was asked about immigration, or every time Andrew Shearer was asked about abortion rights, he couldn't answer. And you have to think that he had a good team around him and that they and that they practiced the answers to these questions six ways till Sunday. But he could never actually spit it out in a way that created a position. When, you know, the camera lights went on, could not do it. So Aaron O'Toole, so far he has been very, very uh, prescriptive in terms of what his platform is and where he stands on a number of issues. His challenge will be to keep that narrative so that Canadians hmm. are crystal clear on who and what they're voting for. Um, as this moves forward, uh, and, you know, obviously September 23rd is going to be a throne speech. Uh, either it will be voted, uh, it will be accepted or it will be voted down, uh, throwing the country into uh, an election. Do you think Canadians are up for an election during a pandemic? Do you think this could backfire? Yeah, 
I think it could. And, you know, I'm sure that Trudeau wanted to have uh, an election while he was handing out all that CERB money. Um, you know, and, and while Canadians, you know, his, uh, his ratings were very, very high. However, you know, reality sets in. We can't keep handing out free money. And I have to tell you, I don't think most people knew where this money was coming from, which was basically from their own pockets called taxes. So I don't think that the government's going to fall uh, in the next few months. I think that most watchers are talking about a spring election when hopefully maybe there'll be a vaccine or people are more likely to uh, want to go out and vote. But I would be really surprised if there was an election uh, this coming fall. All right, trying to cram in a lot here uh, with the last minute or so. Uh, Your impression so far of where we are in regard to back to class. Obviously, there's concerns right around uh, right across the country. I think we've pretty much seen the same plan all the way uh, across the country implemented by by uh, most provinces of every political stripe. What are your thoughts on how we're heading back into uh, uh, to class this September and the messaging? I think that the messaging has been a little bit late in coming. However, it seems that as I was watching the news footage from the kids uh, who already went back to school in Quebec, that parents were really satisfied with the way that protocols had been implemented. And I think that a lot of people were watching that. You know, there's, there's any, there's any number of ways in which to whip up hysteria about uh, anything. So until we see what actually happens, I, you know, it's it's hard to know. I don't have a kid who's going back into a public school. She's going back to university. And definitely everything is going to be online for that. But um, I think that the proof will be in the pudding. I think that there may be an outbreak. I think that people are expecting that there will. But hopefully the protocols are being put in place that we can get our kids back to school in a safe way. And heaven knows that both provincially and federally, they're kicking in enough money in order to help make that happen. Now, it would have been better to see that money earlier so we could have fixed that, those ventilation systems, some of which work and some don't, could have created more spaces in order to create social distancing in classes. So I feel that we're a little bit behind the ball. But let's see what happens, because quite frankly, I do believe that our kids got to get back to school. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.